Activism begins in heart. It begins in the heart. So many times we think that activism and standing up and speaking out against injustice is just something that comes out of anger or frustration. Actually, it comes out of a broken heart. It comes out of feeling as though that the way things are are not the way things have to be. And I can't just stand by silently and not do anything about this breaking heart. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello to our Shades of Hope podcast listeners. We are so excited about season three of our podcast. You guys have been so faithful over these last two seasons, and we have grown, we have gleaned, and we are ready to go with season three. I have with me my partner and my friend and brother in Christ, Pastor Jeff, how are you doing today, sir? Pastor Moore, it is always good to be with you as well. And it's just been such a great journey for us to be on together. This podcast has been a joy to participate in with you. Thank you for your leadership and your mentoring of me. But this season three, we're so excited about the guests that we'll be able to have And we're just especially thankful for those of you who continue to reach out and encourage us and share your stories of how this has encouraged you. So thank you to our listeners. And again, we're just really excited to be able to do this for another season. Yes, yes, absolutely. I would say ditto to all of that. And to our listeners, we are, again, thankful that you tuned in to season three. I know we've taken a little break over the summer, and we're glad that you are with us. We believe, Pastor Jeff and I and our guests, we believe this is a sacred conversation and especially trying to empower the Church of Jesus Christ on how we could move forward in helping our culture navigate these polarized and times of division. We believe that, in the words of Bill Hybels, that the hope of the world is the local church and all of the other movements that empower our communities to Love each other as Christ has called us to love one another. Well, Pastor Jeff, we open up season three with a treat, with a blessing. We have with us one of God's chosen vessels, and I'm going to be introducing this young lady to our audience. We have Dr. Leo Gunning Francis. Dr. Gunning Francis serves as the dean at Christian Theological Seminary right here in our great city of Indianapolis. She is happily married to the Reverend Rodney Francis for what she calls in her foreword in her latest book, 15 fantastic years of marriage. I love that. And God has blessed them with two handsome sons, Desmond and Evan. 
And so she has authored many books, but we're going to be talking particularly about two of her books. And her latest book is Faith After Ferguson, Resilient Leadership in Pursuit of Racial Justice. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Leah. Thank you so much. It is truly a joy for me to be with you all today. It is our pleasure, our pleasure. You have spoken to our congregation here at New Era Church and blessed us with your powerful approach to Scripture. And we have students at your seminary that are gleaning and growing as they matriculate and get better to serve God. And so we are just blessed to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Dr. Leah, in 2015, you wrote Ferguson and Faith after the tragic murder of an African-American young man by the name of Michael Brown, by, of all people, a Ferguson policeman. And in your new book, you revisit the clergy and the activists from the front lines of that tragic moment. And so we wanted to spend some time talking with you as you relate to what that was like going back to Ferguson and revisiting those activists and community leaders. You know, Pastor Moore, when Michael Brown was killed in 2014, I, like many people in that area, found themselves outraged and hurt and impassioned to say, we can't keep going down this road. And so I, like many, were involved in a lot of the protests. And at the time, my husband was serving a congregation there. So our church was involved in a lot of faith-based activism, and we were keeping our fingers on the pulse of what was happening with clergy. Little did I know that I would be invited by the good folks at Chalice Press Publishing to write a book on clergy involvement in Ferguson. And so I got busy interviewing clergy and some of the young activists that had been engaged in the movement for the many months following that horrific murder, and learning not just what they did, but how they understood their activism, their street protests, if you will. They're raising their voices as expressions of their faith and how they connected this work to their life of faith and encouraged their congregations to do the same. And so after that time being invited to come to Indianapolis and be the dean at CTS, I, a few years ago, was asked by Chalice Press again to go back and find out, well, what's happened since Ferguson? What have we learned? You know, have many of the things that people were fighting for, calling for, have they come into fruition? And so it was a blessing to be able to talk with some of the clergy people and young activists, as well as bring in some new voices of some people that weren't included in Ferguson and Faith to find out that very thing. What has happened? What have we learned? And where do we go from here? It was such a moving experience to relive that again. You know, it's almost difficult to put into words what it felt like. But, you know, the visceral reaction for me was kind of like that deep feeling in the pit of your stomach that you get sometime when you encounter something that is very profound. Because One of the things that we're insistent on making sure that people remember that when we talk about Michael Brown Jr. or anybody else who was in that situation, we're not just talking about a number. We're not talking about a statistic. We're talking about a living, breathing human being who was loved, who has family, who had a whole community that was devastated. And so to first honor that, 
and be mindful of that and keep that in the forefront, I think, Pastor Moore, is essential to doing this work. We cannot just merely keep the ticker rolling as if these numbers are disconnected from actual lives. And so we can't lose that human touch. And to go back and to feel that and to see that, it was very difficult to do, while at the same time, we remember that in doing so, it is a way to, number one, to honor that person and their life, and number two, seek to help to try to move things forward so this does not keep happening to anybody else's child, their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, their friend. So this is at the heart of what we do because, Pastor Moore, activism begins in the heart. Oh, my God. It begins in the heart. heart. So many times we think that activism and standing up and speaking out against injustice is just something that comes out of anger or frustration. Actually, it comes out of a broken heart. It comes out of feeling as though that the way things are are not the way things have to be. And I can't just stand by silently and not do anything about this breaking heart. And so what I've learned through these writings and in my own experience is that activism really does begin in the heart. And it is out of that heart we find the love that people have for other human beings, for other people, whether they know them or not, the true passion and desire and an interest in living out what we believe is a calling from God to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. (laughs) My God, that is amazing. You know, this past Sunday, Pastor Jeff and Dr. Leah, I preached from the parable of the sore. That Dr. Leo just really, you know, because we believe when we deal with our podcast, we talk about shades of hope. It's all predicated and founded, as Dr. Leo alluded to, on, on theology. This is how Christ would have us respond in this time of polarization and to white privilege and white supremacy. Anyway, you know, when Jesus talked about those four kinds of soil, he was talking about those four kinds of hearts Mm. that the gospel and the word that does land on. And I thought about it from a social justice perspective. As Dr. Leo was talking, Pastor Jeff, you know, I think sometimes with our white brothers and sisters, I'm not sure their heart is ready for this tough conversation. You're absolutely right, Pastor Moore. I do think your assessment of the soil of the hearts of white evangelicals in particular right now are that they're hard. And that we're not willing to pay attention to the statistics or the stories. One of the things that I've found to be helpful, and I think others have found to be helpful, is that stories are important, that we have to get beyond the statistics and we have to hear from people who are experiencing the real effect of the racialized violence and the ongoing white supremacy that is obvious throughout our country. It's easy to just swipe left on a statistic, but a story has impact and power and it communicates something. Proximity is also really important. And we've talked about this on a regular basis, but the more we know about people who experience this as their everyday, as Pastor Moore would say, lived reality, the harder it is for us to turn away and do nothing. Mm. Yeah. You know, Dr. Leo said something on a previous encounter with her 
I want her to speak to it now because she her new book is entitled Ferguson and Faith. And Dr. Lil, you said something to me that I never forgotten. You said, I wonder sometimes which Jesus some of these folk are worshiping. You know, Pastor Moore, that remains a salient question for me. It is apparent to me and many others that we seem to worship a very different God, Mm. even as followers of Christ, even as people that share the same Bible and recite the same liturgies or sing the same hymns or worship in structures that look the same. But who is the God that animates the life of the congregation and the individuals within it. There seems to be a disparity. And so Pastor Jeff was just talking about the human aspect and how we connect to others by story and not just statistics and dealing with hard-heartedness. I would like to add to that because I believe that's true. While at the same time, In this country, we have this longstanding history of Black people not being seen as fully human. Yeah. And so, until the church of Mm. Jesus Christ takes seriously, number one, as we saw Robert Jones talking about, you know, the history of the role of the church, particularly the white, you know, white Christians in promulgating, you know, white supremacy throughout history to include the devaluing of the humanity of Black people. And that narrative has still never been fully denounced It has not been eradicated in the ways in which we need it to so that all people can see Black people as fully human. It is safe to assume, I'm going to go on a leap and believe you all would agree with this, (laughs) that if what happened to Michael Brown Jr. or Mm. 12-year-old Tamir Rice or Sandra Bland or the names are too many to list— If that happened to a member of your church, Pastor Jeff, outside, right in that quaint Butler-Tarkington neighborhood Mm. of an 18-year-old white young man, a 36-year-old white woman, a 12-year-old white boy, Jesus, what would the response have been? Complete and utter outrage. Outrage that produced a change in laws, possibly change in practices, changes in procedures. But we would not have been able to just merely continue on with business as usual, not neither locally nor nationally. But we see this happening again and again and again to black people and have not seen the change that so many of us have been hoping for. And it leads us to ask the question, well, why not? Well, when we do not see Black people as fully human, as deserving, as the kind of attention and attentiveness as we would a white person, we're going to keep landing in this same situation. So at the end of the day, for me, what I see pastors at the heart of all this is Mm. we have a crisis of humanity and what it means to be fully human and who is considered fully human in this country. Wow. You know, after that, Pastor Jeff, I mean, what what do we say? I mean, it's just, just such a powerful, I think, commentary on the condition of human depravity 
and it is a human problem. I wanted you to just to, to speak to that. I don't think it could have been put any better than by Dr. Leah and you, Pastor Moore, and I wholeheartedly agree that it is a human problem. And the challenge for me, and maybe I don't even know where the disconnect came for me all of these years, but we begin in our scriptures with the image of God implanted in every human being. That the Imago Dei exists in us because we draw breath, right? Because we are human. And anytime that that's diminished, the church has a responsibility to stand up and say no. Anytime that that image of God is diminished in anyone in favor of someone else, we have absolutely the theological responsibility to stand up and say, this is not the story of the God that we serve. And because we know that we live in a world where this does happen. We have the responsibility to be ambassadors of reconciling that, of saying no to that, of standing against that and promoting the humanity and the dignity of everyone. That is so very true. And we have so much opportunity before us to do something different. I mean, this is what's so stunning is that, you know, when uh, after Trayvon Martin was killed in Sanford, Florida, by a self-proclaimed neighborhood watch person who went and stalked a 17-year-old walking down the street minding his business, not bothering anybody, who ends up right. dead, and a jury says, yep, he was guilty, uh, you know, and the phrase Black Lives Matter started coming into our consciousness, and then it was held up even more after what happened in Ferguson. And you hear Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and what was it met with? Well, all lives matter. Right. When the data shows that all lives only matter to God. And so hmm. until that changes, you know, we cannot proclaim in good faith that all lives matter because the truth is the data bears out, the facts bear out that black lives in the United States do not matter in the same way as white lives. And so until that happens, you know, we cannot proclaim that all lives do indeed matter. And so here the church has an opportunity. As you've already stated, the church ought to be the purveyor of yeah. holding up the banner of all lives truly mattering unashamedly, unequivocally, unequivocally, but it's doing the opposite in so many instances. It's saying that, you know, you are less than or you are not fully human, or you are not truly a child of God in so many words. And so that's just not what God calls us to do or who God calls us to be. And your book, Faith After Ferguson, and then you go with this word resilient leadership, because the perpetuity, or should I say the propagation of this big lie that brown and black people are subservient or not equal, started and was propagated by quote-unquote Christians. And so this disease, this malady, has been in the church down through the life of America. And yet you write a book saying we got to be resilient. Well, we got to have some leadership in pursuit of racial justice. I try my best not to lose hope, Dr. Lib. Help me out here. You know, it, <laughs> it, it is a daily occurrence yeah. to want to raise up your hands and holler and say, I give up because the odds seem stacked against us so high. But it is only through our faith. 
it is only through remembering that our ancestors who came before us and have endured in this country for generations and have made the kinds of sacrificial efforts that have even brought us to this point. You know, we can start all the way back at the time of when African people were enslaved and brought to this country and the kinds of resilient efforts that happened and made possible for Black people to even be able to exist in the midst of such oppression and tyranny. Come on now. But even if we moved up forward through the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s and looking at the ways in which Black people, some white people, church people, non-church people, young people were standing up and saying, we will not tolerate this. They're putting their bodies on the line. They're putting their reputations on the line. They're putting themselves in the way to disrupt the systemic issue of injustice as related to race and racism in this country. They say, we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And so... We look at that and are reminded that even in the face of everything that they did, and some of those people are still alive today, right? We <laughs> forget right. that that wasn't that long ago. Wow, no, grandmama's still hanging out. But some of them are still alive today, That's and right. then so many are not, as we know. But to remember that many times, there's so oftentimes we will not live to see the change for which we are working. There are many people in the civil rights movement who fought, who bled, who died, who sacrificed so that black people will have the right to vote and never got to live to vote. Right. Right. There were so many who did that for the right to have equal access into a school and never got access into that school. You know, we can go on and on and on about that. But the hope is that our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews and neighbors coming behind us will not have to live in this type of world. We're seeking to try to build a future and a hope for them because the reality is, is that you and I may never live to see it in the same way that so many of our ancestors did. So for me, Pastor Moore, this is where I find the hope. I find the hope in my faith in God. I find the hope in remembering those who have come before us. And I find the hope every time I look into a child's eyes, whether it's my children or whomever's children it is, to say, this is the work of our hands today, to seek to build a world in a future filled with hope for them. Wow. That is so true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That is so true. You know, in the words of the late Fannie Lou Hamer, we're sick and tired of being tired, but she didn't stop there, did she? She didn't stop. She didn't stop there. In the face of all that she dealt with. And I mean, she was literally beaten, not just figuratively. I mean, literally brutalized, but she did not stop. And, you know, we have to trust and we have to believe that all of these efforts make a difference. And they have in some small ways, but we can't get discouraged when the big things that we hope to see have not yet happened, when white supremacy is no longer the rule of the day. Right. You know, we can't let that distract nor discourage us. Amen. 
because this is a spiritual battle. That's just a powerful testimony. And when you were speaking, Dr. Leah, the thing that just kept ringing in my ears is that passage out of Hebrews where the writer chronicles the generation upon generation upon generation of Hebrews who struggled for their freedom and who had to trust God in the midst of all of the pain and all of the loss and all of the disappointment. And the writer turns in chapter 12 and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and let us run the race that is marked out for us. And I just had that image of the way that you're telling the story, how the the gift of that story and the resiliency of those who have gone before you gives you the courage, creates that cloud of witness to take what's been handed to you and to do what you can to steward it and pass it on to the next generation. Absolutely. We have to do that and to keep telling these stories, the story, the biblical witness like that you've just read and our own stories, our family stories, our neighbor's stories. Listen, my maternal grandparents growing up and living in Pulaski, Tennessee, one of the hotbeds of the Ku Klux Klan, Mm. they only could go up to a sixth grade education. Why? Not because they didn't want to go to school, not because they weren't intelligent, but they had to go work in the fields. My maternal grandparents, here it is in 2022. Come on. Their granddaughter earned a PhD. Their other grandchildren have accomplished all. You understand what I'm saying? So we've got to hold on to that hope. Absolutely. And to our listeners, I hope that what you're hearing is a air of optimism in the midst of this darkness. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun and we must do like David. I think in the book of Acts, it said that David served his generation and he died. Mm. And what Dr. Leah is challenging us We need to serve the generation that God has put us here to serve. Fight the battle and the incremental battle. What's the quote that justice bends slowly? The curve of justice bends slowly. Y'all know that quote by Dr. King? Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. It bends slowly. Right. The arc of justice bends. The arc of justice. Oh, Lord. Now I'm messing it up. (laughs) You're close. (laughs) The moral arc bends toward justice or something. There you go. We're going to get there. And uh, the first African-American president, I can't understand why Barack Obama kept calling this thing, this democracy, an experiment. Mm. Now I understand better. Mm -hmm. It's still Mm -hmm. in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. It hadn't come to fruition yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, And so I was telling my wife last night, wow, if it had not been for the faith Mm -hmm. of our forefathers Mm -hmm. and the faith of those, our white brothers and sisters that fought with us, mm-hmm. we would not be where we are today. You would not be a PhD because no. they would never allow you to do that, Dr. Leah. Nope. Wow. And here you are because somebody fought the fight and we must continue to fight. I, I want to ask you a quick question. In your book, your first chapter says, this is us. What were you trying to tell us in that particular arena of your new book? For the new book, it was important for me to talk about some of the learnings from Ferguson, but also to pull the narrative 
all the way forward through the U.S. Capitol insurrection. I believe that Ferguson was a major flashpoint in this country where, you know, we saw for months and months and months tanks and tear gas, the media was focused on it. It had a worldwide impact that actually rippled forward in, in many different kinds of ways. And so... To come all the way after everything that happened in Ferguson and still years after that, seeing so many other incidences of black people unarmed being killed by police officers just was really too much to bear. But just when we thought we'd seen it all, we saw what occurred at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021, where for years we had been hearing that, you know, oh, somebody was not compliant. And so that's why the police shot them. Oh, they didn't, you know, show their hands. They shot, they thought they had a weapon. Now here on January 6th, though, we saw with our own eyes outside of the Capitol, at the foot of the Capitol steps, you had this mob of people, a wall of police officers trying to keep the mob back. Do you think that the mob just said, oh yes, we're going to obey the police and turn around and go home? No. What did they do? They threw water bottles at them. They spit at them. They pushed them. They shoved them. They beat Mm. them with batons, all this kind of thing, all the way up through and into the U.S. Capitol building while the Congress was in session. Wow. If there was ever a reason for a police officer to draw her or his gun because they, quote unquote, felt fearful for their lives, it was then. Right. But we saw the exact opposite. We did not see guns being drawn. We did not see tear gas sprayed. We did not see rubber bullets popped off and hitting anybody in their bodies. We saw none of that. We saw this thing, de-escalation, is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) We saw none of that. And if there was ever a clear example of police officers being threatened, their bodies being threatened, it was before all of our eyes on January 6th, but there was no kind of retaliation. So One shot, one shot, one, one gun One shot inside, we didn't even get to see that whole thing, but everything else we saw outside, right. nothing. And they made it all the way to the Capitol floor, stole classified documents. I mean, the list goes on and on. And oh, by the way, there's still been no real consequences. Okay, right. so you asked the question, why did I title it, This Is Us? the first chapter of Faith After Ferguson. I did so because after the Capitol insurrection, then President Biden, he had not had the inauguration. He came and said, this is not who we are. Mm. We are better than this. And I had to say, stop the press. Yes. Part of the problem is uh, promulgating a myth that this is not who we are. No, this is who we are. And until we face that fact, stand in our truth and commit to going a different way, we will not be better than this. And so that's what I dealt with in the first chapter. I dealt with the fact that it happened on Epiphany. Oh my goodness, it is the day in the life of the the Christian church that we remember the Magi's visit to the new baby Jesus. And that's why we call it this epiphany. Mm. And so for all of that to culminate on that day and to then see the response, which really to me has been a non-response, it was 
we've got to stand in our truth about who we are. This denial about, oh, that's just them or this little small group. Mm -mm. No, this is who we are as a country. Wow. I heard the late, great Dr. Benjamin Hooks, who was president of the mm -hmm. NAACP, made a statement at a, a lecture I went to attend. And he said to a audience of mainly white professionals that we need to stop denying America her rich history of racism. Mm. And this is who we are. Now, this is not who we have to stay. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why this podcast is trying its best to kind of send a message. We don't have to stay this way, but we will stay this way, Dr. Lil, as long as we keep making those kinds of statements. Yes. That this is not who we are. Yes, this is who we are. It's like a alcoholic until he or she determines that, yes, I am an alcoholic. Mm. They can't begin those steps of renewal. A recovery. Right. I think I said on one program that I need to get people like you together, Dr. Leo. We need to put together a 12-step program of recovery <laughs> <laughs> for that we could put out in front of America from the yeah. Shades of Hope podcast. If we are going to be able to stand before a higher power yeah. and hear him say, well done, mm. thy good and faithful servant, we've got to take some steps and we can't do it without first looking in the mirror. Amen. Dr. Leah, one of the things that I really appreciated about both of your books is your willingness to give voice to those who oftentimes we don't hear from, sort of the, the people on the ground who are doing the work, the activists and the strategists and the organizers, and they're working in these small contexts, but both of your books do a great job at elevating their voices. And as you reflect back on your work, I was just interested in asking the question, was there anything that surprised you when you went back to do the follow-up work? Did the needle move at all in terms of some of the things that you would have loved to see if progress was happening? One of the places that was clear to me that that needle had moved was in the area of electoral politics. The prosecutor in Ferguson, who was wrapped up in the situation and what happened with Michael Brown, he had been in office for many, many, many years and got booted out. And somebody else, Wesley Bell, was elected. That was the direct result of right. grassroots, on the ground, organizing. But it did not stop there. A long-term congressman, Lacey Clay, whose dad, Bill Clay, was a right. congressman before him, got booted out yeah. due to on the ground, grassroots, organizing that went to help make it possible so that Cori Bush got elected. And so that to me is where you saw the most heat, light, and energy come into prominence yeah. after the Ferguson movement where, you know, there were folks who said to me, we've become an organizing city. We're not on our heels anymore, just kind of sort of waiting to see what happens or right. waiting to see what politician might do what we hope they may. No, no, no. We're really being a lot more proactive. We're 
taking to the streets. We know how to organize now. We know how to connect groups with each other. So it's not just this little group over here working and that one over there working, but how to make connections, bring groups together, form alliances, and get people motivated, energized, and organized to make change. And so you saw this with these longstanding politicians in office that are no longer there. That was a direct result of organizing. How was the church involved in the activism in Ferguson? Yeah, it depended on the congregation. You know, of course, by no means we know that was it all churches that were involved, but there were some congregations who understood this to be integral to who they were. You know, let me just say to your listeners, sometimes people say, oh, you know, church and politics don't mix or (laughs) God forbid a pastor mentions the word race or racism and they accuse him or her of preaching politics. That's not what this is about. What churches did who did get engaged was not so much to say go out and vote for this person or that person, but rather to get people engaged in the voting process, taking advantage of uh, the opportunity to register new voters, to make sure people were educated and engaging in voter education about the process. Because states like Indiana and where we live is considered a voting regressive state. In other words, there are some policies that are in place and some laws that are considered restrictive when it comes to voting. So, for example, voter IDs are not required in every state. Did you know that? And for people who don't have one or have difficulty getting one, you know, that's that can be a barrier. And so Indiana stacks up many barriers for voting and Missouri is no different. And so to have people on the ground making sure that people are educated, that citizens are educated to their rights, what is required to vote, and especially for people that move around. Listen, what we know is that too often people that are impoverished, people that are housing insecure, addresses change quite frequently. Well, you know, unfortunately, too often state legislatures know this as well. And put policies in place that make it difficult if somebody has an address change and maybe they haven't registered it or whatever it might be. So anyway, just trying to make sure that people knew what they needed to do to be able to vote, where their polling places were, all of that kind of thing. Those were things that churches can do. Those were things that congregations can do and saw this as their civic duty to to say, hey, we all ought to want everybody to equitably and fairly participate in this process. Did you see any kind of activism or any movement among predominantly white churches as you went back to Ferguson? Did you see any evidence of any movement at all? Where I saw the movement was there were churches, white churches in particular, one that started having more conversations that were considered sacred conversations on race. Yeah. And sometimes people would say to me, oh, Dr. Francis, all churches want to do is talk, 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 talk. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> and I say, listen, I hear you, I feel you, but hold on a second. For some congregations, they haven't even had a conversation about yeah race, racism, and white supremacy in this country. They haven't even taken that first step to say, this is us, and we need to confront that history. So let's not 
disparage or discourage congregations for whom are just taking that first step, but rather provide the support and encouragement for them to do so. So that's one area of taking those first steps to just have a conversation. But then there were other, you know, some, not many, I don't want to overstate this by any means, uh, predominantly white congregations that did more than that, you know, that went so far as to be safe places for protesters because there was another major protest that happened after Ferguson in response to a police officer who had killed another person actually before Michael Brown, but, you know, it didn't go to court. You know, these things can take years. It didn't go until afterwards. And so there was a massive uprising after that. And so to have white congregations, you know, providing safe sanctuary for people to provide support, bail support, other kinds of things. So those were some of the ways that some white congregations got involved afterward, even in the years following Ferguson. But, you know, what I believe that the next most faithful thing that predominantly white congregations can do this Sunday and going forward, whether they're in Ferguson, whether they're in Fresno, <laughs> whether they're in, in, Falmouth, Indianapolis. in, in Indianapolis or Falmouth, <laughs> Massachusetts, wherever yes, they may wherever. be, that for them, the leaders to stand squarely in the church's history of white supremacy to own that, own it. to learn about what that means for your particular congregation and to seek to repair the damage that has been done. That is what every predominantly white congregation can do starting this week. Like you don't have to wait. You don't need permission. You don't need a special program. You can start that work right now. That would move the needle. And we can do this. We have language for this. This is actually why we go to church on Sunday mornings, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, Come on now. declare that right. we right. want to live in the light. And John says, when we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. <laughs> we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. And so our liturgy calls us forward into this space to confess our sins. I mean, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The way that we have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another is by standing squarely in the reality of the darkness of white supremacy and our sin. Yes. My God. And we can do that also because of the grace of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of confessing our sin. The blood of Jesus has covered us. We can move forward into the light, into the grace and mercy of God. And this has nothing to do with politics. This is just the work of being Christian. Mm. It, it's just Christian work. Mm, mm, mm. So true. So true. John's famous cousin, who happens to be the savior of the world, in his last prayer before he went to Calvary, the subject matter of his prayer was that of the unity of the church. It wasn't Sunday school. It wasn't how to build new buildings. It was... Father, my prayer is that my children, the church, would walk in unity. We have been listening to the Dr. Leo Gunning Francis, author of a brand new book that you must read, Faith After Ferguson, 
Resilient Leadership in Pursuit of Racial Justice. I want to tell you now, before we allow Dr. Leah to give us final words, we're going to have her back real soon to finish this conversation. Dr. Leah, would you close us out with these last words or any kind of admonition or anything you want to share with our listeners today? I would leave with your listeners a reminder that you are a beloved child of God. Your neighbor is a beloved child of God. All of us together are beloved children of God. But if we're going to live into the fullness of that, we must confront the reality of how we have been distorted by selfishness, by greed, by a sense that whiteness is above and better than others. Repent of that, move away from that, and live into a vision of a world where we all can live as beloved children of God. Remember, the Bible teaches us that it is the truth that will set us free. Let's stand in our truth today and stand in love doing it. And we will get free. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at Shades of Hope Podcast at Gmail. Dot com. That's Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children.